This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Greetings, everyone. This is Dr. Adam Rindy. Welcome to this episode of the One Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to share with you a conversation that I had with Dr. Ron Sinna, who is an internal medicine specialist out of the Silicon Valley area in California. You'll quickly see that Dr. Sinna is a expert in metabolic health. And our conversation did not spare many aspects of metabolic health. We go into insulin resistance, dyslipidemias, obesity, fat gain, things to do about these issues. We speak deeply about South Asian health, which has a number of metabolic risk factors that we discuss in detail and generally look at this concept of metabolism and mitochondrial function. Dr. Sinna is very practical and he has very practical steps. He's very balanced in his views. He doesn't promote any restrictive ways or restrictive lifestyles. He's just really looking at how to optimize your body so that it can counter the effects of mitochondrial aging and are generally more progressively sedentary lifestyle. I think you'll really get a good understanding of metabolism just by listening to this episode, and it should inspire you to learn more about these topics from some of our other episodes and then to get on board with his podcast, which I mentioned is called the Meta Health Podcast. And Dr. Sin has also written a book. He has a number of courses. He really knows his stuff and I just had a great time preparing for this interview and then sitting down and actually having the interview. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Dr. Sinha, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's so great to be here with you today. Pleasure's all mine. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so I mentioned offline that how much I've been enjoying listening to your podcast, and I'll love for you to share more about that later and the courses that you're doing and all your wonderful work in this space. I'd love to first start off our conversation just hearing a little bit about who are some of the key mentors that have influenced your clinical style and educational style. Yes, absolutely. You know, so when I started with my internal medicine practice, you know, I was traditionally trained in internal medicine and started my primary care practice predominantly in the Bay Area. And, you know, when I applied sort of the general principles that I learned in medical training, although it was useful to some degree, I found in the area of lifestyle management, I had a big gaping hole. And just providing sort of the traditional, you know, teachings, very minimal teachings on things like nutrition and metabolism, just wasn't meeting the burden of obesity, insulin resistance that I was seeing in the clinic, and especially in a very young population. So I would say my first mentor, and I'm kind of lucky to say this, was Dr. Jerry Reven, who was at Stanford University. And if you don't know Jerry Reven, the late great Jerry Reven, he actually founded insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. So he was the gentleman mm-hmm. that coined metabolic syndrome. And when I was writing my book on sort of insulin resistance in South Asian health, I had the honor and privilege of meeting with him a couple of times and exchanging emails back and forth. So he really took my approach, my traditional approach to heart disease prevention, which really for traditional doctors is a very LDL-centric approach. And this was over 10 years ago. And he really helped me refocus on the burden of insulin resistance, which we'll talk about. So I'd say he was like the first mentor for me, and I was really honored to have that connection with him. Now, kind of pivoting to outside the traditional research and medicine world, my next mentor was actually a gentleman that you probably know his name, Mark Sisson, who was kind of the you know person behind the primal movement back during yeah. the Wild World in the primal days. And so when I was kind of um, pitching my book to several publishers to write, I fortuitously came across Mark Sisson through a workshop, but through one of his colleagues. And I never imagined that he would be the one 
to publish a book of mine, which was really predominantly geared towards a vegetarian Indian population. But he had such an expansive, open-minded approach to lifestyle and metabolism that it was really the perfect marriage between my work with Jerry Reven and then really understanding what do athletes go through? And what was his own journey and his huge audience that he has all throughout the world? What is the messaging that he's using, you know, for Mark's Daily Apple, his popular blog? And that's where I really became engaged around dipping deep into science, traditional medical research, but also seeing what's happening in the world of athletes and other folks that are high performance folks. So I'd say those two interactions were really influential on me. And then there's been a host of other interactions that have taken place, too. But, you know, when I look back, I think of those as being sort of my initial mentors in this space. That's such a great combination, you know, having sort of the solid educational background from coming from Stanford and then having someone like Mark Sisson, who's actually really taken this information and mobilized it to people and help people use it. That's a great combination. I've been following his work since I think 2006 or so. So he's a great one. Yeah. So one of the ways that we were connected is I was really drawn to your work with Southeast Asian metabolic health because living in the Seattle area and especially in Bellevue area where I live, this is a major issue that we talk about quite a bit with our patient population. So I can't wait to hear and learn more about that later today. Yeah. So the bigger question I'd love to start with is why should we care about our metabolism? I mean, you know, on one hand, my grandfather, who's from Europe, he grew a big belly and, you know, lived life, eat, drink, and be merry, and was just like lived life. He had did definitely had some stress risk factors and had a very challenging life, but he lived well into his 90s. And then other people I know who really stress a lot about their waistline and, you know, spend a lot of times worrying about being overweight will have an earlier departure. And that's just a basic example, but why should we care about our metabolism. Yeah, I like the way you frame this because I do think in our current society, you know, I'm just going to delve into this. It's a little bit off track, but I think we're overly obsessed with body fat. And when I think of my own Indian ancestors and some of them that lived to be in their 80s and 90s, they were not sporting six packs. And when, when you look at Blue Zones or Okinawans and they, if they all took their shirts off and had a shirtless picture, people would be not be looking like Mark Sisson in their 60s. But I do think that there is a big problem with us basically identifying our body fat as being the clear marker of metabolic fitness and disease when there's so much more to this metabolism than just that. And that's why even individuals, you know, that I see in my clinic that might have come across a podcast or they looked at a table of what is an optimal body mass index or waist circumference, or they got DEXA scan done, often they feel very terminal based on what they're seeing on those body metrics. Even though when we dig deeper and we look at the metabolic numbers, things like triglycerides and blood sugars and other simple numbers, those numbers are right on the mark. So often I am really trying to reframe things for my patients and my clients to say, let's focus on the big picture numbers. Now, coming back to the word metabolism, Metabolism is a very complex word and really at a very high level, it is how is our body taking those incoming nutrients and converting it into energy. So if we think of our metabolism as being an engine, are we putting the right nutrients inside that engine, the right fuel, and are we getting adequate output to basically serve our daily purpose of physical activity, mental energy, all of those things? Now, you know, in a very closed system, in a very sort of two-dimensional image, we would just be thinking about nutrients and exercise and think that that's all there is to metabolism. But now what we've really understood over the last few decades, thanks to a lot of wearables and different technologies, is things like stress, emotions, connection, loneliness. These factors, which I probably would have poo-pooed, let's say, 15 years ago, now we're seeing these have direct metabolic consequences. And later on, we can talk about this, but when you put on a continuous glucose monitor and you see what happens to your glucose level after poor night's sleep, after an argument with your partner, you will be convinced that some of these interactions are as devastating as you eating a bowl of chocolate ice cream or whatever your favorite sweet is. So I think metabolism, again, very simplistically, nutrients into energy, but it's a much more global system. And now I even talk about how emotions are actually nutrients, right? There is a emotional index, just like the glycemic index in terms of what are daily experiences like and what impact does that have on metabolism? So that's kind of my broader approach that I've evolved into after using wearables and other things to see what are those other non-nutrition, non-exercise factors that can really influence that engine. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And there's sort of this overlap with metabolism being kind of the hub of like you're saying involved with breaking down and burning nutrients, but also involved with inflammation in our body, also involved with possibly cancer processes. Can you talk about sort of like the big landscape of how metabolism interfaces with some of the topics, even things like cognitive decline? Yeah. So if we were going to look at one of the myriad sort of branch points or pathways within metabolism, let's think of like the mainstream of what you'd learn in biochemistry class or just basic, you know, nutrition metabolism. And basically when we are consuming, let's focus on macronutrients. When we're consuming things like carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, they're going to be coming into our blood system and they're going to be entering our cells. And I want to focus for a moment specifically on carbohydrates and fats because those are the predominant energy producing macronutrients. When they enter our cells, basically, they migrate into a structure. So think of a structure inside a structure. So we've got our cells and inside that, I'm sure you've talked about this in past episodes, we've got the mitochondria. And what happens is when you see these disparate nutrients, you know, if you look at the structure of carbohydrates and fats, they're very different looking, but they really come down to being hydrocarbon units, right? Hydrogen is bonded to carbons. And what happens is a process of digestion and metabolism. We take all of these disparate macronutrients and we turn them into two carbon units, basically. And we call these acetyl groups. Those basically are inside the mitochondria. And the mitochondria then goes through a series of steps to convert that two-carbon unit into ATP energy. And one particular process that I want you to be aware of inside that mitochondria is the Krebs cycle. And I'm not going to bore people with the different steps of the Krebs cycle, but I tell people, think of that as being a turbine engine or a merry-go-round that spins around and round. And these two acetyl or two-carbon acetyl units, they go inside that merry-go-round they spin around and they produce ATP energy as a result of that. So in an ideal system, we're going to have just enough nutrients going inside that mitochondrial merry-go-round to produce the energy that our body needs on a daily basis. But what happens with overnutrition is when we're consuming too much food and we're not actually using that energy in a physical exercise sort of way, picture that merry-go-round becoming overcrowded. There are so many two-carbon units trying to hop on that merry-go-round that the merry-go-round starts to slow down. It cannot convert all that incoming nutrients into energy. And then what the body does to respond to this is it diverts those excess nutrients in different directions. It might convert those excess nutrients like carbohydrates or excess fats into triglycerides and lipids and that are exported to other areas. It actually inhibits the insulin signaling mechanism. So instead of us being able to really metabolize um, nutrients efficiently, we're storing them. And then really what happens is in any overabundant situation in our metabolic network, when you cannot actually convert nutrients to energy, you start to produce these byproducts, these uh, oxygen radicals, which are potent oxidants. You increase inflammation in the body. And I'm sure you've used the word inflammation numerous times, but that is really like rusting that engine. It really brings that merry-go-round to a screeching halt, and that can lead to all the downstream consequences. So those toxic radicals can produce insulin resistance, which is a root cause for diabetes and heart disease and also neurocognitive issues, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. You know, clearly when you have cells that are becoming dysmorphic or misshapen or proteins are becoming misshapen because, again, you can't handle that nutrient capacity, then all of a sudden you're increasing the, you know, uh, the risk of other chronic health conditions like cancer as well, and you're accelerating the aging process. So there's a lot of different pathways for those different chronic diseases, but a lot of it really comes down to that fundamental law of nutrient overcongestion, exceeding that mitochondrial engine capacity, and then leading to all of these other overflow pathways that can really drive a chronic disease. And, you know, I've got a little bit of a bias because I've done so much work within insulin resistance. So in my brain, I'm always thinking of sort of glucogenic or insulinogenic type ways in which these pathways take place. The Alzheimer's disease, for example, multiple processes that can cause this. But when our body's producing excessive amounts of insulin, that can really have influences on the brain in terms of how we're able to clear amyloid and other protein type misformations inside the brain. But that'd be a high level on that, basically. Yeah. So starting with that, your, your mention of overnutrition leading to all these sequelae or, or aftermath events that contribute to the imbalance and the disease process and the inflammation, if that ends up being insulin resistance, how would one 
start the steps of reverse engineering that. I mean, if, if it's as simple as, well, you know, just cutting back on consumption of nutrients, is there sort of this path that needs to be repaired or corrected first before that's actually established as a preventative process? Yeah. So, so let's um, dig a little bit more deeply into insulin resistance specifically. And I'm going to use sort of my, again, using a car sort of a, or a traffic network type analogy. And then we're going to get to the root cause of what are some of these things that cause insulin dysfunction. And I'm focusing for a moment on carbohydrates since that can be predominant macronutrient in excess that drives insulin resistance. So in my work, I kind of describe that carbohydrate or glucose molecule like a car. And there's three major parking lots. You've got your muscle, liver, and fat. And really in an ideal metabolism, our muscle parking lot should be clearing about 80% of that incoming glucose traffic. Basically, the glucose goes to that muscle parking lot. It um, causes an increase in insulin. Insulin opens the gate and that glucose gets inside that muscle. So really that's an optimal metabolism is when the muscle is doing the lion's share of clearing glucose from the blood. Now, what happens is when the muscle, for various reasons, which we'll talk about, when it starts to actually not respond to that signal, what happens is we develop insulin resistance. So if insulin is departing past the muscle attendant, you know, the gate guy is basically trying to, uh, uh, you know, put the pass inside, but the muscle is not responding. So now we have this overflow glucose traffic, and that can go in various directions. So let's start off with the liver parking lot. The liver parking lot does have fixed limited space to hold that glucose and the storage form of glucose is glycogen. So typically about 100 grams of glycogen in the liver. When the liver runs out of that space, that overflow glucose goes through a pathway we call DNL or de novo lipogenesis. And that's basically the conversion of glucose into fats. And the problem is even long before you've developed a commonly known condition as fatty liver, when you start to microscopically develop more fat droplets inside the liver, those tiny fat molecules can interrupt insulin's normal action. And in the liver, what that basically means is your liver is going to be pouring out more glucose than your body needs. It's going to increase a process called gluconeogenesis. So that's excess glucose traffic that's been directed into the liver, which produces that extra fat and then expels extra glucose and also expels along with that triglycerides, which is a storage form of fat inside the liver as well. You've also got overflow traffic that's going to our fat cells. And I kind of joke that, you know, your muscle has got fixed limited parking space. So that parking lot has limited space. Your fat cells, that fat parking lot has unlimited parking space. It's open 24-7, right? So you can get hundreds of pounds of body fat from that diverted traffic going in that direction. And that's what can lead to increased visceral abdominal fat along with subcutaneous fat as well. I want you to visualize that situation because that's going to tell you what are your individual risks and manifestations for insulin resistance. For example, some individuals might just have elevated waist circumference. So visualize that means most of the glucose traffic is going towards that fat parking lot. But maybe it's not overwhelming the liver too much yet, which is why you may not yet have elevated blood sugar, elevated triglycerides. Other individuals, interestingly, I see that very little traffic's going towards the fat cells maybe just enough to add an inch or two along the belly, but most of it is going towards the liver. And that's generating a lot of triglycerides and a lot of glucose if it looks like that's interrupting the insulin signal. But that could be our slender, relatively slender individuals who don't have much diversion to fat, but most of the damage is happening at the liver level. So that's the other pathway. Now, when you think about insulin transduction, it's kind of like a circuit, you know? So insulin basically attaches to the cells and it sends a lot of downstream signals to allow your body to clear glucose. If you were to look at three categories of areas that interrupt that circuit the most, I would basically say number one would be inflammation. So excess cytokines, which are the inflammatory chemicals in the body. The second is hyperinsulinemia, so having excess insulin in the blood. So when your muscle cells are not responding to that insulin parking pass, the body responds by overproducing insulin. And that excess insulin will feedback inhibit insulin's normal signaling pathway. And the third thing is those toxic fats that I talked about. There's words for that. We call them diacylglycerol or ceramides. Those can also short circuit that insulin signaling pathway. So to remember this for you practitioners out there, people listening, I say three things. It's cytokinemia, it's hyperinsulinemia, 
and it's toxic dyslipidemia. If you can think of those three categories, those are central factors that can really interrupt that insulin signaling mechanism. So then for some people, if it's just hyperinsulinemia, that's the predominant factor. If you focus on lowering those excess carbohydrates and exercising, doing intermittent fasting, maybe um, you're going to wear a CGM and keep track of your glucose response, even though you can't measure insulin, when you're really contracting those glucose spikes and controlling that, the hyperinsulinemia might be controlled and that might be sufficient to reverse that insulin resistance. There's other individuals that don't show signs of hyperinsulinemia, but it's all coming from cytokinemia. So it's coming from chronic inflammation, which can be from a chronic infection, from emotional stress, uh, an inflammatory diet. So that's the other element we think of. And then that dyslipidemia, again, that can be a downstream product of any of those interacting in the wrong way. So I'm simplifying it by saying three categories, but as you know, these are always overlapping. Hyperinsulinemia drives inflammation. Increased inflammation drives insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, but those are categorically the three ways I think about it. And then with each patient, I try to decide where is the area that we can make the most impact initially. If they've got elevated blood markers for inflammation, HSC reactive protein, maybe we're going to attack inflammation first through an anti-inflammatory diet and other mechanisms. If it looks like they got a lot of high triglycerides or elevated blood sugar, and they're clearly from a dietary intake consuming too many carbohydrates and calories, we might attack from a dietary standpoint. So sorry, that was a long explanation, but I thought I'd break it down for you in the way that I typically do. Yeah, I love that. And I love the kind of three different channels to look at and how they can be be activated in in an it's not just one pathway there. There's multiple different ways that insulin resistance can manifest. And the parking lot analogy is amazing. Unfortunately, one of the, like you said, one of those parking lots just gets bigger and bigger. It's like yeah. an airport sometimes. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Yep. So I think one of the things that you talk about in your teaching, and I, I want to just plug this in here at this moment, because I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this are thinking, well, you know, what, what do I do about this? And we're going to get to that, I'm sure. But I really like how that you talk a lot about layering um, different modalities and different interventions. And that is a really, I think, a really good concept to talk about how people seem to, in this space, kind of pull back on one lever, like, okay. So you're telling me I have insulin resistance. Okay, so I'm just going to go pull back on every single carbohydrate or I'm going to just go get huge in the gym, you know, become massive with lots of muscle mass or I'm going to cut out every single food that has inflammation associated with lectins and gluten and dairy and all that stuff. So have you evolved to see how it's not just like one lever and it's just more of kind of making it work for the individual. Maybe this is a little too early to go into this, but I just wanted to put this in here because I think a lot of people get really anxious about sort of these all or none approaches. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think we are now living in an era of overly restrictive dietary practices and it's become a real problem. I'd say 10 to 15 years ago, this really wasn't a factor is almost everyone who walked through my door was overnourished in some way or form. But now because of the onslaught of so many different camps of over-restrictive dieting, often when I'm doing dietary intakes, I would say at least half of my patients, and again, I'm here in Silicon Valley, different demographic. I know it's different in different parts of the country and world, but I would say at least half of my patients are really undernourished in an affluent way. These are people that have read a lot about science, they're following a lot of podcasts, and they're over-fasting or they're scared as hell about any chemical in any food because they think it's going to trigger inflammation. And really, they don't enjoy eating anymore. It's like food is a toxin to them, and they try to limit that as much as possible. So for me, I have to kind of hit the reset button and work on, okay, let's try to introduce things in your diet that we can enjoy, and that's going to make this sustainable because these people are you know, losing the wrong types of weight, and their mindset around eating and exercise has become really dysfunctional. And you see these clients and patients as well, too. They're overfasting, they're overexercising, and they're not necessarily seeing the results that they want. So the first thing with each patient, if they're coming in and I'm already looking at their lifestyle regimen and they've been doing something very restrictive, whether it's a severe autoimmune diet, fasting, keto, et cetera, and they're overexercising, it's really identifying intuitively and based on their lab numbers, what is the area that we probably need to work on the most? Okay, since you're restrictively dieting so much, 
nutrient congestion probably isn't a big issue. I'm not worried about you being overnourished. What I'm worried about is the fact that I'm looking at you right now, your arms and legs are skinny, you are doing a lot of endurance work, but we need to build more parking space. And again, this comes back to the cultural aspects where when I see a lot of Asian patients or Indian patients, you know, they have very slender arms and legs and they don't have much muscle mass at all. And if you look at global studies, um, Asian Indians specifically have less muscle mass than every other ethnic group on the planet. So for them, I'm often starting with how can we really add more muscle or more parking levels to that parking space? I do have other individuals that come see me, just like you mentioned, and they're spending a lot of time lifting weights and barbells in the gym. And they refuse to do cardio because, again, they're following somebody on Instagram or YouTube that says, hey, as long as you lift, you don't need to do a cardio. But that muscle parking lot, I'm oversimplifying things, but I tell people there's two things we need to do. Number one, we need to add more parking space, which structurally means we do need to build more muscle and strength. But we also have to increase throughput. We want to increase the ability of that muscle to burn oxidized energy and create new parking space immediately after that. And although definitely lifting can do that, nothing does that more than increasing aerobic fitness, your ability to just burn more fat and glucose in that muscular structure. So people that are doing a lot of heavy lifting, that's great. They're adding parking space and they're clearly oxidizing energy because you need that for weightlifting, but they're not doing a lot of endurance works. We might just start off by adding more endurance work and then really identifying what factors in the diet we can help. So as you know firsthand too, a lot of people that are doing a lot of dietary restrictions, they're often protein deficient. And I'm simplifying nutrition because often I find a lot of macronutrient issues first. So I start with the macro first, and then we'll get into microtype things like is it vitamin D or magnesium or other nutrients that are important. And again, just because I have a general practice, not a concierge practice, I'd say the vast majority, we have to start with macro moves like what is your form of exercise? What can we do about macronutrients? And then we can fine tune other elements of the diet. So I start with that. And like you said in the beginning, I really try to avoid restrictive because I'm not here to put somebody on a 30 or a 60 day plan. I want to work with exactly how they enjoy eating. And then can I sort of peel off a couple of layers here and there so they feel like this is sustainable over the long term. And that's a real critical thing to do is finding that path of enjoyability and sustainability when you implement these lifestyle plans. Yeah. I think that's really well explained. And I'm glad that you mentioned a number of things such as kind of figuring out how to continue to have enjoyment in food and also enjoyment and movement and exercise. And that's something we've done a lot of time and invested a lot of time on this podcast of making sure that we're not heading down that road kind of educating people on balance and, and these things and trying not to kind of pull extreme levers. And, you know, I think along those lines, it would be, you know, helpful to kind of even back out a little bit further with the, the insulin resistance and talk about how, you know, sort of as life gets more complex. So what do you see getting kind of chipped away in people's lives where like, when does that moment hit? And I don't like when we kind of oversimplify it so much, you know, just sort of like, oh, it's when I got married or when I had kids or, you know, there's always those kind of explanations. But what is it like you're running around in your teens and then you get into your 20s? What starts to shake the system up? Yeah, I think it's just a lot of competing priorities. As we look through our lives, you know, there is a time in our life where, you know, it's all about us sort of, you know, so we're focused on school, we're focused on education, we're able to time manage enough priorities where we can focus a little bit on exercise. We have the benefits of a baseline metabolism that just does a better job of burning nutrients. I mean, I'm amazed at like when I look at, because I've been tracking my numbers for a long time. When I look at, for example, my CGM values or my cholesterol results and glucose and my body weight, man, in my 30s, if I just cut carbs out even a little bit, I could just lose weight, no problem. I, like my waistline would come down, no issues at all. In my 40s, that got just a little bit tougher, but it was still doable. Like I could still be a very... Carb, again, my tendency is insulin resistance. I've had metabolic syndrome before, which inspired me to do a lot of the work over 10 years ago. But even my 40s, I can get away with just, yeah, I'll just avoid a little bit of carbs. I'll keep it at 100, 130 grams, whatever, and it'll be okay. But then the minute I hit my 50s and I saw my patients aging along with me, we realized that it's not that easy. It's not just cutting back the grams of carb by a little bit and exercising a little bit more. All of a sudden, I'm really being faced with the fact that it is the total amount of food that I'm eating that has a huge impact. And part of that 
is if we're not staying ahead of this race, if we're getting incrementally a little bit more sedentary or a lot more sedentary, because again, we're not doing high school sports, we're not in college, you know, we're not doing the usual baseline physical activities that we did throughout our lives. If that's happening simultaneously with the gradual degeneration of our mitochondrial function. So again, I'm using the engine analogy of how efficiently the mitochondria burns fuel. If we think of horsepower, we are losing horsepower with each year of our life and especially with each decade. So this can be very subtle in the way it happens that life, all of a sudden, we're becoming a little bit more sedentary. And now at the same time, our mitochondrial engine can't burn fuel as much. And then all of a sudden, the net effect of that is coming back to that concept of overcongestion, where we're putting more fuel into a system that can't process that for energy. And I'd say over the last few decades, that drop has become more like a drop off the cliff just because of modernization of what we do at home and work. This wasn't a case 50, 60 years ago, but you and I, we've lived through an era where all of a sudden we're working mostly in front of screens where we can doorstep deliver everything. Our incidental daily walking steps have taken a huge, huge drop compared to where things were before. And I've seen that in my patients with the pandemic because I'm a big wearable guy. I make patients get Fitbits and track their daily walking steps. And I've seen the fact that initially, for example, during the pandemic, many people saw an increase in their walking steps. I called it the honeymoon period where people were at work. They thought about their own mortality. They started getting outdoors more. But then after about a year and a half or two years into it, when things really moved into more of like a work from home type environment, I saw many people's walking step just drop off the cliff. They went from 8,000 to 5, 4,000. And as a result of that inactivity, the mitochondrial function just starts to go down. So we're aware of a term called sarcopenia. As we age, our muscles start to degenerate. We start to lose muscle mass. On a molecular level, I call this mitopenia, where our mitochondria starts to lose its function and we're losing those functional horsepower units as a result of our inactivity in conjunction with all of the nutrient stress that we're putting into the system. Now, I can't remember if I answered your original question. I feel like I went you all over the place, but it's yeah. kind of that subtle, I think it was a transition to when things start to you know happen, right? When the engine starts to fall apart a little bit. So. Yeah, I mean, it's great to sort of know what we're up against as far as mitochondrial aging and also just this socioeconomic climate we're in, the obesogenic environment that the world has become. So, and, and I also share a lot with patients that literally every decade, you kind of have to take a good hard look at your current program, your current lifestyle, your current way of eating, your current way of sleeping, current way of stress management and tweak. And there's kind of a, for most people, a free pass for a little while. And then it's like, okay, you know, as they say, aging is, what is it? There's, there's a saying about that, that it's, it's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the bottom line, right? So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I'd love to get more into Southeast Asian community and population. And what I see is, as I care for a great deal of people from India, and there's sort of this trend that starts to happen in the 30s that brings up a lot of concerns related to metabolic issues. And then there's conflicts over dietary uh, traditions and choices and messaging that they're hearing maybe in the United States versus the way families already always eaten and there hasn't been these kind of metabolic problems before. And so there's a big conundrum and a big struggle with my patients. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this podcast can relate. So can you explain that to me or us? And I know you already alluded to the fact of the lower muscle mass. Is there other layers to this that you can share with us? Yeah, physical inactivity is a big problem culturally in this population. Just sports and, you know, sports is usually takes a very low second to academic performance, professional performance. So it's really not a big culture of, you know, physical activity and exercise. And that's a big generalization. But when you look at worldwide studies that even use activity metrics and they put kids and they put pedometers on them, we always find that South Asians in particular they tend to be the least active. So that can have huge implications on mitochondrial function. And this actually even goes back to parental physical activity levels. So if mom and dad also were not physically active, they didn't exercise regularly, that really sets the genome in place for that child to probably not have as much of a robust metabolism. And we see that, right? When you've got two athletes that have a child, if they're Olympic athletes, whatever, you know, if it's Steph Curry, you know, et cetera, they're going to have a different breed of child than two software engineers or two people that are purely academic who are not doing much physical activity. 
And this is important to understand because when I speak to adults about this, you know, again, I don't want them to go and blame their parents and get mad at them, but a lot of it is what are the genes that we were dealt basically. And now we have these genes in place. The good news is we can do a lot of things to reverse that. So the first thing is a message of hope because I see patients for almost every generation or every sibling had type 2 diabetes or something related to insulin resistance. And they feel like, why should I even try? Because I'm predestined to develop prediabetes or diabetes by the time I'm 30 or 40, like mom or my sister. And the good news is, you know, it's not just genes you inherit, it's lifestyle patterns and diet that you inherit too. So if you can be the one that takes physical fitness seriously, if we can tweak your diet in ways that were not parts of your cultural patterns, we have a very strong chance of reversing that pattern. And that's really encouraging. I don't get false hopes, but in the majority of cases, and you see this as well too, when you've got that motivated South Asian or whatever you know, ethnic group, somebody just coming from a you know, family history that's rampant with chronic health issues, it's incredible that within one generation, if you implement different lifestyle practices that are aligned with the principles that we're talking about, you can reverse the trend on almost all of that. You know, even my patients that have had gestational diabetes, they've often been told by their OB that, you know what, you're most likely going to be diabetic with your next pregnancy. So just be ready for that. But usually I find that that gestational diabetes was a result of how they went into that pregnancy. And I'm like, listen, we have a second chance now with the second child. We're going to do things differently. And nine times out of 10, they do not get gestational diabetes the second time around. So we don't want to think of genes as being something terminal. There's definitely things that we can do. So physical activity aside, then we really do a detailed nutrient intake to see where are the opportunities that we can take to really, again, prevent that flow of excess injury into the system. And I'd seen the early days, Adam, I was probably a lot more carb fearful because I saw what that did to my body. So a lot of my approach was, let's just cut the carbs down by 30, 40%. But nowadays, what I'm doing a little bit more over the last seven or eight years is leaning more on just adding nutrient density in the form of proteins and healthy fats and other nutrients. And guess what? The byproduct of that is people will automatically reduce their carb consumption by a certain amount. So what are the things that I can add instead of removing? Because we talked about the air of restrictive dieting. What things can I add to your plate? They're going to make you feel better and they're going to prevent you from snacking within one or two hours, right? What's a breakfast that's going to sustain you for three to four hours based on satiety? And then, yes, the end result of that is, guess what? You're not taking as many carbohydrates or other foods. You're snacking less, and you're going to see a really beneficial impact of just doing that. On the exercise front, many of my patients that refuse to go to the gym and exercise, we're just talking about the concept of exercise snacking. How can you be more active during Zoom meetings? You know, How can you take little breaks in between and just get the body and the muscles moving in very innovative ways? while you're getting the, you know, all your work and your other responsibilities done. So just starting with those two processes, people start to feel better. And then we're all driven by metrics and numbers. And many of my uh, South Asians, they bring in spreadsheets, right? They're engineers. I've got 20 years of data right in front of me. I'm sure you've seen that before. And what I'm looking for is quick wins. Like, let's just check your triglycerides now for the next three months. We're going to check it once a month. And it's incredible that if they even stick to 20 or 30% of my advice, they'll often see their triglycerides drop by 50 or more points. Now they're bought in. They're like, wow, I haven't seen this in years. What do I do next? I feel a bit better. An inch or two is off my waistline. Now what do we do to motivate them? Okay, can we modify your dinner a little bit? Or let's switch out your snack. Or maybe we'll do one time a week of 30 to 40 minutes of aerobic endurance. Some patients honestly are super motivated. They want to do everything. So then I'll throw the kitchen sink at them and see what lands. But others, I've got to be very incremental. And then we got to track the numbers that I know are going to respond most quickly. And those are numbers like triglycerides, maybe put a glucose sensor on them so they can see the immediate impact of their lifestyle and diet on mitigating persistent glucose elevations, et cetera. So using data, encouraging messaging, you know, sensors to maybe keep track of them. This combination seems like it works really well in folks. That's great. I love how you started the answer talking about how being focused on changing, you know, familial trends or familial health patterns by, you know, sort of taking charge of diet and lifestyle. I really like that message. And it's really refreshing to hear that you're not asking necessarily to change cultural diet or cultural foods. It's more about eating more nutrient rich aspects of those foods. So for example, while you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, like lentils are just tremendously nutritious food and a big part of Indian cuisine. Are there specific foods or traditional foods that you emphasize and 
to kind of get some of the more carby, sugary stuff out? Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's going to be a different approach to the vegetarian Indians versus the non-vegetarian Indians. With the non-vegetarians, it's much, much easier because they're consuming chicken, fish. They're getting the adequate protein, which most of my Indians aren't getting. But, you know, my vegetarians, if we're to focus on that, again, you know, in the early days, I might have been a little bit lentil phobic as well, too, because as much as we're getting protein, you know, the carb intake, the carb content in lentils can be quite significant. But now really what I'm doing is because lentils are such a great source of B vitamins, other nutrients, fiber, et cetera, it's really looking at the plate and putting the right combination of foods together. So for example, it's, you know, a lot of my patients that are just doing dal or lentils and rice, and they're having a flatbread. It's like in that one meal, they're eating over 100, 150 plus grams of carb in that just that single meal. So what can we do if you really want to have the lentils? Let's have the lentils with a good vegetable-based curry. And the nice thing about Indian cooking is they do a wonderful job of making beautifully tasting vegetables, right? That's why a lot of vegetarian restaurants use a lot of Indian recipes because there's so many amazing vegetables we can eat. So now you've got some protein from the lentils. You've got a nice bulky vegetable-based curry. And then with that, if you wanted to have something dairy-based like a paneer or, you know, some of my patients, I'm getting them to maybe consume tofu or some other protein source, and they're able to incorporate that. Or if they're open to eggs, other protein sources, they do fine. But if they mentally keep track of the fact that they're not getting every single food group is from the carbohydrate family, in addition to the fact that they're not physically active, that's really going to be a uh, you know process of overnutrition with that adequate energy expenditure. So when they start doing pro- you know mixing and matching proteins with the proper carbs, they can still enjoy their favorite foods and do well. The other thing, obviously, is you know there are a lot of healthy fats you know or fat neutral type parts of the diet. So you know ghee obviously has a lot of health benefits, but I do tell some patients be a little bit careful because some people are overdoing ghee. And we might sometimes see their LDL cholesterol go up, but it also has some Ayurvedic anti-inflammatory healing properties. So if you look at a lot of the dietary trends, often we are using a lot of the traditional spices like turmeric. You might be using here coconut oil to some degree. So I remind a lot of my Indian patients that guess what? This is native parts of our diet that we can incorporate, but let's not do like a carb bomb for each one of our meals, especially when we're not physically active, because that's going to be a big issue in the long run. So Excellent. Well, I want to finish our conversation with a few quick hitter questions and then maybe kind of turn things over to you and hear more about your podcast and some of the programs you're doing and kind of wrap up with that because there's just so many great aspects of your work. And I absolutely love your podcast. I want to make sure our listeners hear about what you're doing with that. So quick hitter questions I have, like the first one is if you were to get a metabolic scorecard for each of your patients and say for people with just like average income level, maybe have access to health insurance, what would be your scorecard? Like what tools would you use? What measurements would you get that pretty much most people listening to this would have access to? Yeah. So I think it is important for everyone to get either a standard or an advanced lipid panel. Um, I know there's a big push in sort of the health and medical world now to move towards advanced lipids. And I think they can really provide some additional useful data. But for most of my patients, just starting with the standard cholesterol panel, we can get a lot of information from that. But really paying attention not to just the numbers like the total cholesterol, not just to the LDL, but like I talked about earlier, focusing on that triglyceride and HDL, making sure your ratios are optimal. So for example, if you take the triglycerides divided by HDL, you want to get that ratio low. Less than three would be a start, but even getting it to less than two would be even better. So that's a standard lipid panel. Then, you know, the glucose, obviously, we have the hemoglobin A1C test, and that's a useful test to get an average snapshot of your glucose over the last two to three months. You know, fasting blood sugars, as much as I order that as a standard part of the panel, I feel like um, fasting blood sugars are very, very difficult to interpret because, you know, I have very metabolically healthy patients that just tend to run a 105 when they get up in the morning. And it really means absolutely nothing at all because their A1C, their average sugars, their CGM values are okay. So I do tell people just a grain of salt when you check that fasting blood sugar because some people might have a slightly elevated value in the morning. And it's not symbolic of the fact that they are truly pre-diabetic or that impaired fasting glucose especially if their overall diet and lifestyle plan are fine. But that's another test we check. Now, fasting insulin, I think, is getting a lot of press. I have used fasting insulin not routinely. It is relatively affordable. But I do have some disclaimers around fasting insulin because some people feel like if their fasting insulin is right within range, then, you know, just based on some of the podcasts they've been listening to, they feel like they're not insulin resistant. But I do have plenty of patients that have 
other signs of insulin resistance and their fasting insulin is actually normal. Now, when fasting insulin comes back really high, it's in the high teens, above 20, that probably is an indicator that you are insulin resistant to some degree. Because coming back to that parking lot analogy, your body is having to produce extra insulin to push the nutrients into muscle and other sites. So that's another test. So we've got the glucose, we've got the lipid metrics, possibly insulin, and then the body metrics really, in order to really identify sort of body metrics, I think the waist to hip or the waist to height ratio is a really good way to go. The waist to hip ratio has been around much longer. So basically taking your waist circumference, dividing it by the hip, and you can look at tables online that stratifies it by different culture groups. Another way is the waist to height ratio, basically. So you basically take your waist circumference and your height, you divide the two. And in general, your waist circumference should be about half of your height or less. Rough rule of thumb there. But again, when you use tables and standards like I talked about earlier, you want to really combine that with those other metabolic numbers to see where you stand. So if I have a patient where all their lipids and numbers looks great, but they still happen to be 15 or 20 pounds heavier than the table, or their inches might be one or two inches above, I'm actually not worried if they're feeling great and they're staying physically active. They might have a cosmetic goal they want to strive towards. That's up to each individual, but I'm pretty happy if their energy, endurance, their strength, their fitness and metabolics are fine, and they happen to be carrying some of that extra weight. But that's kind of the starting point of the labs that I'd start with. And then the next layer beyond that is, yes, maybe in some individuals, we'll do DEXA body scanning to see body composition, et cetera. The last thing I would add is I don't do this routinely in everyone, but in my individuals, my patients that do have signs of insulin resistance, we're trying to make a decision around whether they need to be on medications like statins or so. I do have a low threshold for checking an inflammatory test called the HSCRP or the highly sensitive C-reactive protein. Now, on top of that, I am blessed in my medical group because if I see other signs of systemic inflammation, gut disorders, all the things that you treat so directly, I might refer to my integrative colleagues like our common friend, Dr. Akil, who is obviously an excellent physician. He's got colleagues as well. So we might go that next layer. But I love the fact, I don't think everyone's ever asked me what are accessible and affordable ways we can handle this. I often get asked a podcast for people that feel like every patient has a blank check and they can write whatever amount for their testing. But this is a real prohibitive thing for our patients is, you know, the cost of some of these tests is prohibitive. And really beyond a certain level, those additional tests don't necessarily add that much more value. So, yeah, I mean, I find the more affordable tests also have way more data behind them. So, um, you know, it's easier to feel confident with some of the decision makings if you're going to try to use that data. Like, good point. yeah, I would love to, if we have time, just a quick comment on apolipoprotein B as a marker. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to dig into that now? Yeah, I just yeah. want to hear like if that's part of your thinking or if that's still something that's you're still considering. Yeah, so, so one of my colleagues, I'm sure everyone knows him because he's world famous now. Peter Atia obviously has been pushing ApoB for quite some time. And me and Peter had a lot of conversations a few years ago where we'd talk a couple times a month basically to discuss South Asian patients and insulin resistance. And definitely at that time, I was ordering advanced lipid panels. The ApoB, I think, is an absolutely useful test because it is true that one of the many factors that can drive heart disease are the number of LDL particles that you have in the blood. And the apolipoprotein B is a test that can more reliably sort of tell you what is the amount of that LDL particle, or oh, I'm sorry, I should say the ApoB particle traffic that's in the blood. Now, having said that, even without doing that test, if I have somebody that has triglycerides above 250, 300, or they've got a high triglyceride to HDL ratio, I can bet my money that they've got increased LDL particle traffic. I don't need to get an ApoB to check that. So I'm already going to implement the same lifestyle changes and advice that we've been talking about without having to get that ApoB test. On the other hand, I have some patients that look metabolically fine. Their numbers are fantastic. You know, everything's looking good. They're exercising. They're doing everything great. And getting an ApoB doesn't necessarily add that much more to my implementation plan. Now, if they have a significant family history of early heart disease, et cetera, we might do an LPLA and an ApoB on top of that. So I'd say in most of my patients, we might check a baseline ApoB at some point. But I just want to get away from us thinking that, gosh, if we don't get an ApoB, we're doing a disservice to our patients because I would say that, you know, there's enough other signals that tell me that, okay, this person's insulin resistant and high cardiovascular risk, even without me having to check an ApoB. But I do agree that now that these tests have become affordable and accessible, at some point, these might end up becoming the gold standard, which I think makes sense in the long run. Excellent. Thank you for explaining that. So yeah, I'd love to wrap up here. I know you have to get on to another conference. 
and just would hear some like to hear some closing thoughts. And if you could t- share our audience about your podcast, your courses and anything else that you'd like to share and so that people can follow you and get involved with your work. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think what I appreciated about this conversation is we stuck to just the basics and keeping things as simple as possible. So I think one big message would be really be aware of the noise that's out there. It's a very noisy space around health and wellness. And really, again, I'm not being overcritical here, but a lot of our colleagues in the health and wellness space, they are driven by a lot of material incentives to sell supplements, to do more advanced testing on a regular basis, to maybe make health seem more complicated than it is. And I just want people to be aware of that. And now with the integration of AI technologies and chatbots, guess what? People are going to be putting out a lot more content and they're going to use image modification to show that they have a six pack, they'll have before and after. We are literally about to enter an era where you're going to be inundated with even more information. So I think it makes a lot of sense for people like Adam and I to really just stick to the basics. And I'm not sure changing. Honestly, I don't check ApoBs in myself every three months. I don't do most of these other tests that people are recommending online. So sticking to the basics, I think, is really key. Now, my resources are really focused on that. That's why I really try to teach people about metabolism in detail. So my podcast is called the Meta Health Podcast. And I dig pretty deep and I use a lot of storytelling and imagery to teach you these concepts. And part of that is because I want you to appreciate the wonders of the human body because it's incredible what our body is able to do. But it's also so you can be a discriminating consumer of health information and make sure you're really not being oversold products that you don't actually need. So Meta Health Podcast is one place. But I think the best resource to go to is just go to my blog at culturalhealthsolutions.com. I do write blog posts there. You can link out to my uh, MetaHealth podcast. I'm also on social media on Instagram at MD, but you can find all of that stuff when you go to my website at culturalhealthsolutions.com. I think that's good. Excellent. Thank you. And I say this to my audience that your podcast is the first podcast that I've literally said to myself, I want to listen to every single episode. Oh, that's um, okay. uh, yeah, I just I feel like it's a master class in all these things that we talked about today. So if this rings anybody's bell with you know the things that you like to learn and the important, I mean, it's important for all of us to learn this. And just the fact that you walk us through bit by bit, step by step, concept by concept and use ways that we can understand is so helpful. So thank you for doing all that. And Thanks for coming on today and spending time with us. My pleasure. Thank you for the work you're doing too, Adam. You take care of yourself. All right. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from that. Forward the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.